0: a number wrote a trees on the church. But when the Reformation event happened and people started to debate about how to respond to it, Thomist commentators would put stuff on the church in this section. Now, I'm not justifying that. I'm not saying like, that's the way to go, always do ecclesiology on Secunda secundae, questions one and two. What I'm saying is you'll see as we go why they saw that the faith is deeply related to the mystery of the church. And he, there's a lot of ecclesiological stuff in here. There's also a lot of stuff about salvation of people outside the visible church. It's very different than Calvin. And so we'll kind of note that. There'll be more in the second part of this morning. Now, this is a book. Secundus Secundae is about the virtues and the vices cardinal virtues and theological virtues. Seven, right? Faith, hope, love prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. He begins with faith. It's a theological order, again, it sort of all lines up. We're orienting our life toward beatific vision in sacrodoctrine, thinking about all things in light of God. What's the most, what's the structurally first virtue we need to worry about? Faith. Faith is received where? In what faculty? The digestive faculty? Does faith help me digest better or worse? Or what about the reproductive faculty? Or what about the imagination? Is faith in the imagination? No, it's, it's in the will, faith is in the will. I want to believe, where's faith? Is it in the intellect? Faith's in the intellect. And what's, what, where's hope and the uh, charity? Charity's in the will. Yeah, where's hope? <coughs> I desire to become a neuroscientist. I have to get through organic chemistry. I hope to pass organic chemistry. Is that an act of my intellect or of my will, that desire? It's an act of my will. Okay, so faith is in in the intellect and hope and charity in the will. The intellect directs the will because you can't love what you don't know. So we start with faith because faith is (coughs) orienting the gaze of the mind towards God and then giving us the object of our hope and of our love. So love is, more, is in a way more perfect, it achieves the person or in a certain sense, but faith is more noble It's what orients the person intellectually towards their end. Whether the object of faith is the first truth. Object, species, what's specifying the mind when you have faith? Knowledge of the first truth. What's the first truth? Is that- it is God. See, so it lines up why does he a lot because because He's the truth before all other truths. But why does He call Him truth instead of the first good or the first beauty or the first unity? So of the of the yeah, because he speci- This is God as specifying the intellect in faith. We come to know God, the Holy Trinity, as the God is the first truth. All right. On the contrary, Dionysius says faith is about simple and everlasting truth. Now, this is the first truth. Therefore, the object of faith is the first truth. I answer that. The object of every cognitive habit includes two things. All right. First, that which is known materially and is the material object, so to speak. And second, that, that whereby it is known, which is the formal object, aspect of the object. Now let me just say right away, this is not exactly like form and matter in a living being or something, like the soul the body. This is like the matter is the stuff you believe in, the obje- object you, you know, like that in which you believe. The form is that whereby you believe in it. It's a little bit different use of form and matter here. The formal object is that whereby I know something. The mat- matter is the thing known. Or the stuff. That in which I put my accident. Okay. Thus in the science of geometry the conclusions are what are known materially. Like if you think about, what, do you know geometry? <coughs> I know geometry. What do you know? Well, you know the conclusions that flow from the principles. The axioms while the formal aspect is the mean of demonstration. How do you know geometry? Well, I know it because I know all the axioms or principles, and I know how to employ them in order to reach the conclusions. So that's also knowing geometry. I know how to do geometry. I know the conclusions of geometry, and I know how to do geometry. I'm a little confused because it seems like we're talking about a means and relationship. Kind of. And if I were to try to put it uh, Map it onto a matter-form relationship. I would probably do it backwards. Yes, that's that's wh- well. See, that's why in the way he uses the language here, it's confusing if you're used to him the other in, in reading other places. So this is you know, this is again why Aquinas's mind is more unpredictable or nimble sometimes than one imagines. It's less systematic, but the, but he there is something in what he's doing. This is just a different use of form and matter. And here it's true. He says the the form or the object. The material, the formal object of thought is a means through which you know the material object, which is a kind of end, which is weird. Accordingly, if we consider in faith the formal aspect of the object, that through which we know the truth, it's nothing other than the first truth. Now, sometimes the commentators talk about this being God revealing himself to us. Like, how do we know God, the material object? Through the means of God revealing himself, the formal object. For the faith of which you're speaking does not assent to anything except that because it's revealed by God. All right, so in a certain way you say, well, what is, what's the object of faith? Well, if you talk about the material of the formal object, that by which we know, it's God revealing himself. God speaks. God communicates himself, like knowledge of himself. God communicates his own life to us through grace. We know God communicating himself. Hence the mean on which faith is based is the divine truth, i.e. revealing itself. If, however, we consider materially the things to which the faith ascends, they include not only God, but many other things, like Abraham, which nevertheless do not come under the ascent of faith except as bearing some relation to God, inasmuch as to wit. Through certain effects of the divine operation, man is helped on his journey towards the enjoyment of God. Now that lines up exactly with what we saw the first day about the object of theology as a science. We study God and all things in light of God. So what he's saying is the, the formal object, that through which we know, like the means of demonstration, like something like, analogous to the means of demonstration, is God revealing himself. God gives us knowledge of himself. And that which he gives us knowledge of is himself and all things that we need to know that pertain to salvation in light, seen in light of God. So, it's not, so what, what we know in the faith is not just the God, the Holy Trinity, the one God but also like the mysteries of the life of Jesus, the mysteries of the life of Mary, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the sacraments, the mystery of Israel, the mystery of the fall, many, many other things. But they're all understood in some ways teaching us about who God is, so that we can enjoy the contemplation of God in this life and in the world to come. Consequently, from this point of view, also the object of faith is in a way the first truth, inasmuch as nothing comes under faith, except in the relation to God, even as the object of medical art is health, for it considers nothing save in relation to health." Okay. That's the first sort of beginning point. What do I have faith in? God. Who, how do I have faith in God? Because God reveals himself to me. So I believe God speaking to me, and I believe in God who speaks to me. I believe what God reveals to me about himself, and I believe God who reveals himself to me. How do you know God? Well, because of God. What do you know because of God? God. All right, so then you say, well, that's very simple. And it is simple, it's lovely. Like the faith is primarily about believing in God, believing God and knowing God. But then he said, look what he does. He gives you intellectual whiplash, article two, where the object of faith is something complex by way of a proposition. Oh wait, I believe in propositions now? Wait, you just told me I believe in God, who's not a proposition. God is not a proposition. On the contrary, faith is a mean, you know, it's in the middle between science, let's say demonstrative knowledge. Science here is not like, you know, physics, it's like any kind of body of demonstrative knowledge. And opinion. I think it's gonna be cold today. It's my opinion. Now the mean is, that's not scientific conclusion, that's just like my opinion. Now the mean is of the same genus as the extremes. since then science and opinion about propositions, it seems that faith is likewise about propositions, so it's object is something complex. So now he first told us what we know is God, and now you're telling us the object of faith involves propositions. So it involves cognitive content expressed propositionally, and it's neither, and those cognitive, like if I say Jesus is Lord, I believe St. Paul, when he says that Jesus, he affirms the divinity of Christ that the man Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, that is a propositional statement. And you say, that is a science, that you say, is that? can you demonstrate that scientifically? You say, no, I can't, I can't make a philosophical demonstration to oblige you by necessity to believe it based on principles that are universally accessible to all men through natural knowledge. This is something I know through faith because God reveals it. You say, so you're saying it's just your opinion? You know, Some people say Jesus is Lord. Other people say the Buddha is the, he who gives us the wisdom. No, I don't think it's just my opinion. I think it's absolutely true. It's been revealed by God, and we can know it through supernatural faith. But I've just expressed it to you propositionally, and it's neither opinion nor de- natural demonstration. I answer that a thing is known in the, no- uh, in the knower according to the mode of the knower. This is a very famous phrase of Aquinas. Sometimes when somebody... At table in Dominican order, says something kind of, you say, you say a thing, you say something, and then he says something kind of, he's understanding what you're saying, but he's understanding it in a funny kind of way. He says something kind of eccentric, and everybody at the table just says, Well, the thing, the, the thing known is in the knower according to the mode of the knower. <laughs> we all have our way of assimilating the truth. Right. It, all these classes, reading clients, we would like, we could take like, you know, spiritual x rays of your mind, you'd all know the thing according to your mode of knowing. Now, the mode proper to the human intellect is to know the truth by synthesis and analysis, as we saw when we looked at man in the first part. Hence, things that are simple in themselves are known in the intellect by a certain amount of complexity, just as, on the other hand, the divine intellect knows without any complexity things that are complex in themselves. Okay, so God is simple, but we know God in a complex way, because we think proposition. And we're complex, but God knows us in a simple way, because God knows all things in light of his own essence. For more on this, you have to see the first part. What do we mean by simplicity? It's not the simplicity of a cue ball or, Aquinas says, in us, simplicity is an imperfection. God's simplicity is perfection. So one example is that we're constituted by body and soul, but God is, God is not constituted by body and soul. So we're, he's let, that's what we mean like, for example, we're more complicated. God doesn't have a, a, a material body. The essence of God is immaterial. Accordingly, the object of faith may be considered in two ways. First, as regards the thing itself, which is believed, and thus the object of God is something simple, God himself. Second, on the part of the believer, and in this respect, the object of faith is something complex by way of a proposition. So what is this telling us? In this life, while we have faith, grace, well, grace never destroys nature. And in this life, while we have faith, the way we know God supernaturally through faith is in accord with our own natural structure of reasoning and thinking. Now Aquinas thinks there are three operations (coughs) of the natural intellect. This is an aerosol too, apprehension, judgment, and reasoning. So an apprehension is just like you walk into a room and you see a baby and a dog and you don't have to reason about it. What is that? Oh wait, I have to give a demonstration. That's a baby. No, no, demonstrate it to me. You just, you grasp immediately, your intellect apprehends, oh, baby, houseplant, dog, car keys. And we try to educate children to begin make apprehensions by pointing at things and saying language, conventional language uses to them to get them to infer for the repeated language use using the phantasms that there's an, an essential content distinguishing the car keys from the plant, houseplant, from the baby, from the dog. Anyway, you just apprehend stuff and then you start to r- make judgments. That is a baby and that is a dog and they're very different. The baby is differentiated by this and that. And then from that you build up reasonings. The baby is capable of laugh. The baby is not, the baby is currently crying because it can't eat its applesauce, which has been taken away from it. But all men are capable of laughter. Therefore this baby is capable of laughter. So let's see if we can amuse it. So as to change its disposition from one of tears and sorrow to one of joy. And so it's funny how quickly they can change, but anyway. The point is you use reason to engage with the baby. Okay, so those, what is faith? Does faith give you new concepts? Not really. The Word of God, the Bible, is full of human language, but it, it doesn't give you, as it were, there's no such thing as distinctively Christian concepts. There is distinct, distinct you know, there's Christian reasonings, and we'll come to that in a moment. What it gives you is a new set of, specifically it gives you a new set of judgments. Like I say to you, is Christ God? You say, yes, Christ is truly God and truly man. That's a judgment of faith. Is Christ truly present in the Eucharist? You go into the church and you, you kneel and you look at the tabernacle. You judge that he's there in faith. It's a very concrete judgment. Is the Virgin Mary the mother of God? Is she real, is she alive? I judge that she is, it's true she is new judgments of faith. I use normal human concepts to make those judgments, but people who don't have those judgments by the grace of, of faith can't understand the fundamental judgments I'm making. They can understand that I think this is true, but they themselves don't yet make these judgments or aren't making these judgments. Now once I make those judgments, I can begin to reason about them. What does it mean to say she's the mother of God? does that mean she begot from all eternity the very divinities the divinity god himself is eternally begotten of the virgin mary no does it mean that she's the mother of our lord in his in virtue of his human nature because his body gestated in her from conception to natural birth yes may i contest the idea that christianity brought no new concepts yeah go ahead because before christianity no one had heard of grace sense or of a religious order or even of science as it's practiced now? Well, okay, so there's a lot of different things there. I mean, I would say there's no question that faith has massively influenced the development of human reason. And, in fact, I would even say there's complex concepts that only emerge in theology, like, now I said complex, that's purposeful. Things like transubstantiation or uh, even like thinking about God's omnipotence, that's not a very clear concept in pre-Christian Aquinas thinks that we could know God's omnipotence in principle through natural human reason, but it's very hard, unless you understand that God performs miracles, to think seriously about God's omnipotence. Um, so, definitely, concepts that we could have, can obtain, that we could in principle obtain to naturally, we haven't without re- Christian revelation. And it's changed our understanding of what we can do scientifically. But what we can do scientifically by nature, in principle, is something that pertains to our, human inclin- our natural inclinations. What I'm just talking about is does God allow, does God give us new acts of conceptual abstraction just by virtue of the fact that we have fa- the, the grace of faith? So when I like, for example, judge the Christ as God and man, do I also abstract from that a new specific concept that I don't get from natural reason. And I think we don't. I think what happens in faith is we use ordinary natural this is disputable. This is theological opinion, it's not church teaching. It's a classic Thomist view. That what we do is we get a new judgment that Jesus is God-man, and we use our natural concepts to think about the incarnation. Then we come up with things like hypostatic union, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Now, that's a new wedding of concepts, it's a new use of concepts that would never have happened. And maybe we start to think about what personhood is in a much deeper way. I think that's all true. But just in the sort of like the building blocks of human reflection are still based on the natural apprehensions of ordinary concepts. That's my claim. And we, it, you could do go a long way in discussing this. It's a very, it's a very important point you raise. Uh, and, again, it's like often we see, you all see all the kind of different roads that go out from these questions. So. Yeah. we also can't conceptualize that. So has Right. Yeah, that's right. So when we say God, I mean, we have, well, this is another interesting question. Do I have a philosophical concept of God? I think that's also, I don't think that's a supernatural complex concept, but I think it's a natural complex concept. Like, I think we can get a nominal definition of God as a conceptual idea, but it's not an immediate.: Well, I would say, yeah, I'd say even, a, well, I'd say even the natural concept of God is not really an, a direct, it's not a direct apprehension of his essence. So it's like, it's, it's basically knowing God through his effects, even less so a Tiara, could I know um, God in his inner life as Trinity just by a, a direct apprehension of God. So I've got to use natural concepts wed to the, what script, Scripture gives me what, this is why Scripture is so important it gives me an arrangement of human thinking, propositions and conceptual knowledge already oriented by under the light of prophecy and that means just revelatory knowledge of God given to the authors, sacred authors it gives me a way of orienting my intellectual life propositionally and conceptually toward the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Can I ask you a question which I hope doesn't mess up? Yeah. But you might kill me for this. Yeah. And just tell me if you don't mean to ask it. But you haven't spoken about faith in us as a form given to the intellect, as a virtue the interior. That comes later in these questions. Yeah. Because I see it already in the first one. In the first that is a pro that's a habit? Because it's that by which we know certain truths. Yeah. Which we wouldn't otherwise have to pass into. That's right. Yeah, it's elevating our human mind to know things we couldn't know otherwise. But we're, I think he comes to it. Well, anyway, let's keep talking. Yeah, well, yes, Ruby. If you're yes, back to, move to the third article, uh. before you do so, in the second article, could on what he means by top of page 5 the Basically, right before the reply to section 1, he says, in this respect, the object of faith is something complex by way of a composition. Yeah. So what does that? Mean? Um, what we what we objectify, or what we claim is objectively true, about God, who is the object of faith, is in us uh, formulated in an objective way. You might say we, you know, this, this this knowledge of who God is is in us formalized in an objective way through a, a complex proposition. Complex means that there's a you know, uh, it means grammatically complex, really. I mean, there's a subject, there's a verb, and there's a, a an adjective or a subject, you know, uh, an object of the, so I think God is the first truth. Right, so we express that knowledge in the form of, or you're not the form in his sense, but rather in the... Yeah, in the mode of a proposition. Yeah, in the mode of a proposition, yeah. Um, all right, object, ar- article three is fairly straightforward. Can anything false come under faith? Um, If I go to the middle of the corpus, the formal aspect of the object of faith is the first truth so that nothing can come under faith save insofar as it stands under the first truth under which nothing false can stand as neither can non-being stand under being or evil under goodness. Right, so that tells you everything I know about God is true if it's revealed by God. Everything about God is real. It's not non-being. Everything about God is good. There's no evil in it. So God, can, who is the first truth, is not able to deceive us, nor can he be deceived, or he can't fall into error, he can't communicate error. This is the traditional teaching that everything in the faith that is communicated, that's truly from God as revealed, must be true. There's all kinds of ecclesiological consequences to this. Well, scriptural, it then, you know, this means like, well, what is scripture really revealing then? You know, what does it mean to believe in its infallibility or its, its, its internal content? You know, you get all of those questions. because Not because those things are God, but because those things come from God as revealing the truth about God. And there's nuanced answers to those questions. Whether the object of faith can be something seen. Now we get a little bit more into how faith is different from evidence science, and opinion. Um, I answer that faith implies assent of the intellect to that which is believed. Now, the intellect assents to a thing in two ways. First, by being moved to assent by its very object, which is known either in itself, as in the case of first principles, which are held by the habit of understanding. That's like the principle of non-contradiction. You just know that the baby is not the water bottle, is not the house plant. I talked about this as nous in Aristotle, intellectus in the Latins, that you have these first principles you just know. Or through something else which is already known, as in the case of conclusions, is in the habit of science. Okay, so we go from intellectus to scientia, nous to episteme. Second, the intellect assents to something not through being sufficiently moved to this ascent by its proper object, but through an act of choice whereby it turns voluntarily to one side rather than to the other as if to be accompanied by doubt or fear on the opposite side. And if this be accompanied by doubt or fear on the opposite side, there will be opinion, while if there be certainty and no fear of the other side, there will be faith." Okay, so like you read in the newspaper that yesterday the Japanese stock market went up such and such number of points in Tokyo. And I say, is that credible? Do you believe the Wall Street Journal? You say, yeah, yeah, I believe it, sure. I say, can you prove it? No, I mean, in principle, one could know by being there, but I mean, it's very credible. That's an act of human faith. You believe what the Wall Street Journal tells you about the Japanese stock market. Now Now you're talking about two co-workers and one of them has made a complaint against the other for aggravated sexual assault and you say well I think we should probably believe that you know but then you hear that there's a backstory, and there's more complicated and there could be motives for recrimination or some other kind of I mean the, you learn that the co-worker who made the who made the claim could have more complicated motives than simple justice and then you say, Well, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm confused now. I mean, I want, in principle, to believe victims, but I also know now I have good reason to think there could be another motive at work here. And so I have a, an opinion, but I'm, I'm, I'm not confident of my opinion. I, w- I would like to, I think we need to be a thorough investigation and try to find the evidence. Right? So these are modes of the mind in which you know, belief is firm and opinion is searching. And opinions are often very important. But so are beliefs. I mean, I, I don't know. Do you think Winston Churchill really existed? Maybe there wasn't no, maybe there was no Second World War. Maybe it's just like, you know, there was no moon landing that was obviously falsified by the CIA and NASA for you know, superiority over the Russians. But probably there was no Second World War either. That was all f- fabricated by the American government to make us think that we should have confidence in the capital stock market system. I mean, how far do you want to go in the conspiracy theory world? Because if you give up on belief as real knowledge, you're going that direction, except you're just believing something else. The point is a lot of stuff in life that we use to orient ourselves fundamentally, especially a lot of major history, historical issues, are really known through reasonable, credible faith on a human level, credible human faith, believable human faith. So even though he begins by saying that he this human faith under the same word. No, good, good, another great question. I'm, j- I'm, I'm making the point that there is such a thing as human faith, which is like supernatural faith, but supernatural faith presupposes something like the natural structure of human faith, but then in, in through that allows us to make new judgments and much more firm and certain uh, acts of understanding of belief uh, that are not that are distinct specifically from human faith so for example when important historical events occur people keep chronicles of them and communicate them so we can come to know that Winston Churchill existed in part because he wrote his memoirs and so forth but what about the apostles telling us about Jesus' resurrection well that is in some sense the same thing in that they are communicating us to us by word of mouth and writing the truth of a historical event that has changed history in a very important way But for Aquinas and for the church, it's specifically different because in this case, when they communicate, they have a special assistance from the Holy Spirit to communicate a divine truth that is, pertains to who God is, as revealed in Christ, about in and through supernatural mysteries so that the object of knowledge is supernatural. The mode of communication is supernaturalized because they are preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and communicating and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when you and I consent, it's under the motion of the Holy Spirit moving us to have faith and to to trust by an act of the will and a judgment of the mind that this supernatural truth is real in a much firmer and more certain way than even the knowledge that Winston Churchill existed. So like for Aquinas thinks the knowledge we have of the resurrection of Christ or the identity of the Trinity revealed through the resurrection of Christ is far more certain and more... Uh, It's of a different specific kind than the knowledge we have that the Second World War occurred or that Winston Churchill existed. It's a perception of the deepest identity of God that is absolutely certain, but it's given to us through the structure of testimony and belief received on the word of another. But in and through all that structure, I go right into who God (coughs) is. My judgment doesn't terminate in Paul said that Jesus is Lord. My judgment that Jesus is Lord that I get from Paul terminates in the first truth, the Lordship of Christ, Jesus' divinity, his identity as the eternal Son of God, his unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one God. I know the Holy Trinity through the Annunciation that Jesus is Lord, that I've received from Paul. I see what Paul sees. I might not see it as intensively as Paul sees it. Paul and Peter may see more intensively the mystery than we do. I mean, I think that's typically the universal opinion of Catholic theology. And it's in a certain way that the teaching of the church that they received the most intensive experience of revelation underneath that of the Virgin Mary who's the most intensive. Okay. Can the things that are of faith be an object of science? Now, he means here... Um, well, see, look at what he says. I answer that all science is derived from self evident and therefore seen principles. Now, seen here is not seeing with your eyes, it's self evident to like based on first principles of, of human reason. Like, I can see with my mind that Caroline is a substance as distinct from Ruby. Now, if you ask a, a Humean, a Humean will say, a Humean will say, no, Caroline is just a bundle. Of atoms accidentally arranged through random flux processes of cosmological. But I judge metaphysically with my mind's eye that we here at this table are each substances that are singular in being. Okay, and I, I'm willing to, that, I mean, I think that's a truth of metaphysical natural reason. And I'm going to fight with the human about that. Um, but that is not what I, see. when I say I see that Christ is God, I'm not having that kind of judgment that I'm making about you all at the table. Now, as stated above, it is impossible that one and the same thing should be believed and seen in the same person. Like, if I, tell, I, I after this, you go back and you say, well, I, there was a person there named Thomas Joseph, there was a person there named Caroline, and if people believe you, right? But you don't believe that we're in the room right now you see that we're in the room. You see it with your eyes, but you also see it with your intellectual mind. You judge, we're here. Okay. Hence, it's equally impossible for one and the same thing to be an object of science and belief for the same person. It may happen, however, that a thing which is an object of vision or science for one is believed by another. I, who sees God right now? Who sees God? I don't mean you in this room. I mean who? Who in the world sees God? the Saints in heaven, right? Remember the definition of subalternate science for theology? The saints see God and we believe what God has revealed to us, which they will see. Which we hope to see. Article six, whether those things that are of faith should be divided into certain articles. Yeah, sure. go ahead. Yeah, please. What is the self evident doing when we say that you can see metaphysically? Um Okay, all sciences derived from self-evident principles. So the, the substance is not a self-evident principle for Aquinas. That stuff I was just talking about. What is he thinks self-evident? Now he doesn't. Now be careful when he talks about self-evident. He doesn't mean innate. It is acquired by the Asian intellect. So if you, you know, it's not. Let's say for the sake of argument, the spiritual soul is present in the embryo. The embryo already has the spiritual soul. That doesn't mean that the spiritual, the embryo, already knows the first principles. There has to be some awakening. The agent intellect has to begin to engage with objects of sensate knowledge. So, the baby is a better candidate at like three or four months when the senses start to focus and the agent intellect is roaming around in there and it starts to lock in on mama as opposed to daddy as opposed to everything else and it starts to have emotional reflection, reactions, okay? What are the first principles that are self-evident? It's when the intellect, the agent intellect begins to awaken in the senses and judge, make the first, first, actually make the first basic apprehensions that this ends, ENS, this being is not that being. It's a simple differentiation, but it can't do that unless there's also some conquering of the internal content of the reality, at least as an end that has some sense bearing on the person. So what's most self-evident, for example, to a small child is that there's this thing and that thing, and this thing has these sensate features, and this thing, that thing has these sensate features. Like, it, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was feeding their child regularly in Portugal, and uh, he'll eat almost anything but mango. And he hates mango. She, she, she was making papaya and like, you know, um, She was uh, squashing the papaya to feed him, and he was just tucking into the papaya, and he loved it, and he was smiling, and uh, he was really happy. I said, well, so is he, somebody said, somebody who knew some of your children said, is he a good, happy eater? And she said, yes, he's really very, you know, he likes to eat, he doesn't give any trouble, but he doesn't like mango. Okay, so this child has discovered that mango is not papaya. Now, he hasn't thought about it conceptually in an apprehensive way, but he's got some basic Awareness. Now you can say that Thomas Jefferson—that's that probably mostly animal life, they, like the, what we call it, the Aquinas would call the estimative faculty, which is present in animals, animals like this and not that. But there's probably a little bit of spiritual life already, because he's 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 in there, reacting with some kind of voluntary response, and as he gets older, it becomes very manifest that the, the voluntary responses are awakened. That means the intellect's at work. So anyway, through these kinds of this kind of a organic development of the intellect. Again, like the plant analogy, it's kind of sprouting. The intellect is coming up. It's starting to judge, there's this thing and that thing. And eventually, I mean, it can definitely tell the difference between mom and other things, because if you take the baby away from the mother, it starts to often become apprehensive because it's making a judgment that it's being taken away from its source of maternal care and security. And the emotional response of anxiety is indication of knowledge. But eventually, it'll also begin to say Papa and mama, and then it'll say man, car, dog. You know, it starts at one and a half years old it's naming things, or two years old is naming things. And it's, dis- it's discriminating this thing as distinct from that thing. And there you must say that the, the you know, the, the principle of non-contradiction and the principle of identity are at work. It started to be able to, to see that there's an, identi- an identification, essential content to a dog is different from a man. Now it doesn't know very much about dogs and men, but it's getting it right. You know, it's apprehending the basics, judging the basics, and then it's just differentiating them from each other. Now, that's, you have to be able to do that to go eventually into a philosophy class and, and wonder if there really is a difference between a man and a dog and a kangaroo, or are they just accidental features? You know, like that's actually from a lot of, from the point of view of pure evolutionary science, a lot of people are totally confused about that, because that's the only optic they have. But philosophically speaking, you can begin to analyze and see that there has to be a really different specific undergirding to what a man is. But back behind that philosopher, worrying about kangaroos and men, there's the first. The person who has those first self-evident principles. Now the faith is like that too. But now the, the judgment is not, this man is not that dog. And the, the first judgment is like Jesus is Lord. And there's, there's something real. Christ is somehow real. Or the Trinity is maybe real. Okay, and then from that, I start to get into questions that are more complicated, like uh, some people think okay, that baptism acts as an, uh, an instrumental cause to sacramentally regenerate you, and other people think it's a mere symbol of an inner illumination. Well, which is the case? Okay, so you start to do the science of theology, but this is, the premises here don't come from the first principles of, of natural intellectus, but from a new intellectus, a new intuition, an a new insight that comes through faith. And in a certain way, the the higher insight of faith doesn't just do away with anything in the lower order or the natural order. It intensifies it from within. Like, so I see a lot of men on the street, on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, and I say, these are all men. That's a judgment, that's like the refinement of those judgments I was making when I was a child. Now I look at this man here on the road and I say, that's also a man that is also God. How do I see that? I don't see that in the same way I see that those are all men. I see that this man is God by a new and deeper insight. I see something on the altar, I say that looks like bread. But I know that that is the body of Christ and by concomitance are present also the blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. That judgment is a supernatural judgment. But that can sharpen the embryonic judgment, like the little baby, is he's somehow present in the Eucharist. And then I you know, study more. I have a, a deeper mystical experience of the Eucharist. And my mind and my heart you know, acquire a, a kind of greater awareness of what's there. So theology is a lot like just, in a way, or it's like an organic part of, it's a part of an organic process whereby we simply conquer more deeply knowledge of the mystery. And gain more insight into it. You explain, uh, like difference, the difference between and judgment at the level of At the beginning they're very close, but judgment is when you are using you use the cupola. This is a man. And usually you have a pre linguistic phase of cognizance it seems. I mean I'm not a child psychologist or a child, I don't do a lot of philosophy of child's knowledge but it's interesting to see they can at least seem to by by gestures and gazes discriminate objects before they can enunciate judgments like this is a man because once you start to enunciate a judgment you're really looking for proper traits so you're saying that's a man that man is friends with my father so he's friendly so I can let him pick me up you're closer there to a judgment, but when we start to really use language in a more mature way, we begin to, you know, arrange our judgments more so in a more sophisticated way. Reasons. So it's a little complicated because you know there's very artificial ways: apprehensions and judgments and reasons. Because more important reasons, reasoning terminates in a judgment. You know, I reason about Socrates never smiling, and I think, well, he's human, so he can smile. That's a judgment. Socrates is capable of smiling, so it's like I make a, a as a fruit of a, ra- a reasoning, I make a more sophisticated judgment, and then I apprehend a truth about him. So in a certain way, the life of mine begins in apprehension and ends in apprehension, but it's enriched through cycles of judgment and reasoning. And those final apprehensions are like judgments. They're like contemplative judgments in which I apprehend the reality more deeply in itself. There's a lot, there's a lot of um, s- sort of uh, too simple thinking about this stuff when you just read Thomas and they say, well, there's three moments of my mind. There are these three moments, but then when you start to look at them phenomenologically, it's more interesting. Okay, should things be divided into certain articles? I answered the word article is apparently derived from the Greek, for the Greek arthron, which the Latin renders articulus, signifies the fitting together of distinct parts. Wherefore, the small parts of the body which fit together are called the articulations of the limbs. Likewise, in the Greek grammar, articles are parts of speech. Hence, um, matters of Christian faith are said to contain distinct articles insofar as they divide into parts and fit together. Okay? He who thinks propositionally thinks discursively, so there's parts of thought that fit together into an organic whole. Now the object of faith is something unseen in connection to God. Consequently, any matter for that, that for a special reason is unseen, is a special article. Whereas when several matters are known or not known under the same aspect, they are not distinguish. They are we are not to distinguish various articles. He, what he's working toward here is the idea that the parts of the creed aren't totally arbitrary. There's a fittingness to them. Now you say, well, Thomas Aquinas, come on, man. I mean, they put the creed together in a much more historically accidental way than you're trying to. You're, and and Aquinas is not denying that it was put together in a fairly accidental way. I mean, they put it together in part against Arius, and then they put it against. Those who denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and then they later added more. But his point is, even though they may not have reflected about it in a scholastic-like way, they were tending by instincts of faith toward things that are priorities, and there's not a, it's not wholly arbitrary. Like a lot of things the church us to believe in the creed are, in fact, a good summary of the core materials of the faith, and so there's a kind of fittingness. He's not saying that yeah, could never have been done any other way, but he is saying there's a pretty you know, intel- it's, there's an intelligibility to the parts of the creed. He says, thus one inco- encounters one difficulty in seeing that God suffered, another in seeing that he rose from the dead. Wherefore, the article of the resurrection is distinct from the article of the passion. But that he suffered, died, and was buried, presents the same difficulty, so that if one be accepted, it is not difficult to accept the others. Wherefore, these all belong to one article. He's going to come to them in a minute, analysis of the parts in article 8. But before he does that, he wants to deal with one more question. So first of all, he's justified that there are articles and that they express different core parts of the faith arranged in groups. And then he's going to argue, say, has the, or have the articles of faith increased in the course of time? This is the closest thing you get in the Summa to something like Aquinas thinking about the development of doctrine. A kind of Newman-like reflection. He does stuff like this some other places. The article, I'm on Article 7. The articles of faith stand in the same relation to the doctrine of faith as self-evident principles to a teaching based on natural reason." Now that's just like what we've been talking about. The baby who knows that the principle of non-contradiction eventually becomes a metaphysician. And so, so you say, what do you give children of God? What are the first intuitions or insights of the children of God? The principles of the creed. This is very interesting. When Aquinas asks you, where do you start to get clear on what God has revealed, he doesn't say, go read the Bible. He doesn't say the Bible's accidental. He doesn't say, read all the teachings of the church. He doesn't say, read theologians. He says, the creed. The creed is the first principles of the science of theology enunciated in propositional form. It's interesting. Is are you still on article 7? Yep. Is this that? No, it's, well, it's, yeah, that's what he's saying. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm just reading into it. The articles of faith stand in the same relation to the doctrine of faith, self-evident principles to a teaching based on natural reason. If you know what, what he thinks about intellectus and the first principles of natural reason leading to the whole science of metaphysics, you can see what he's saying here is the first principles of the science of theology are the articles of faith. The articles of faith are especially expressed in the creed. Among these principles, there's a certain order so that some are contained implicitly in others, thus, all principles are reduced as to their first principle to this one. The same thing cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time, right? That's principle non contradiction. In like manner, all the articles are contained implicitly in certain primary matters of faith, such as God's existence, His providence over the salvation of man, according to Hebrews 11. This is really important, as we'll see in the next uh, hour. Hebrews 11 it says, he that comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that seek him. So I'll come back to this, but Hebrews 11 says, the first says, no man can be pleasing to God without faith, supernatural faith. And then it says, what's the fundamental condition for faith? To believe in the existence of God and his providence. Now the medievals take that pretty seriously. So the point is that God can work by giving the grace of faith to people who believe in God and his providence in some way. For the existence of God includes all we believe to exist in God eternally, and in these our happiness consists, while belief in his providence includes all those things which God dispenses in time for man's salvation and which are his way to happiness. Thus, faith in the redemption of mankind includes belief in the incarnation of Christ, his passion, and so forth. So Aquinas thinks like, if, if you could have a person like Abel, Abel is an archetype, Abel the just man in Genesis. If Abel, Abel is listed in the Bible as having faith, including in Hebrews 11, but Abel doesn't have Christian explicit Christian knowledge, but Abel believes in God and God's providence and God's capacity to save him and reward him. So in that sense, Aquinas is gonna say, we'll see this later, Abel believes in Christ. If he believes supernaturally in God and his providence, he believes implicitly in Christ, even if he never explicitly knows of, about Christ. Here's the most important part of this article. Accordingly, we must conclude that as regards the substance of the articles of faith, they have not received any increase as time went on, since whatever those who lived later have believed was contained, albeit implicitly in the faith, article, faith of the articles that preceded them. It's really important. And a lot of Catholics, most Catholics, in my experience, get this wrong. He's saying there, for example, that Abraham had identically substantially the same faith as us, which is the faith in the eternal mystery of the Holy Trinity. But he knows the Holy Trinity imperfectly under the auspices of the revelation he, was, he received from the God of Israel. Or Moses has the same faith as us. Or Isaiah has the same faith as us. In a certain way, they have it more intensively as regards the subjective participation in it because they, they are saints of the Old Testament we're very close friends of god as regards the objective explicit knowledge of who god is we have a greater perfection because we come after christ i mean if you could choose to be francis of assisi versus abraham you should probably choose francis of assisi but if you could choose to be you know i don't know joe joe smith catholic versus abraham it's it's a little more complicated (laughs) But there was an increase in the number of articles believed explicitly, since to those who lived in later times, some were known explicitly, which were not known explicitly by those who lived before them. And so the Lord said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And my name, Adonai, I did not show them, he who is, the, the Tetragrammaton. David also said, I have had understanding above ancients. And the apostles said, that the mystery of Christ in other generations was not known, is now revealed his holy apostles. So things become more explicit into, up into the apostolic age. And now the fullness of Revelation has been given, but the church comes to a more explicit knowledge over time of what was initially given at the beginning. So we might, you know, there might be things that we don't know yet explicitly that the church will declare explicitly later. They are known, they're contained in apostolic Revelation, but they've not yet been made perfectly explicit. So, for example, the Immaculate Conception. The apostles didn't, did not claim the Virgin Mary explicitly was immaculate conceived, at least we know, have no extremely clear evidence of that. They do teach, it's in the book of Revelation in chapters 11 and 12, that she's the new Eve. And that was taught early on by Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of, of Leon in the second century. And it's very like what we see in the book of Revelation. She's the new Eve. Well, what does that entail? Well, the church later said, well, that actually, when you think about that entails that, she's, that she received grace from her first conception now, it's not until the 4th or 5th century they start to think about that particular problem. And it's not until the 13th and 14th century they start to get towards a definitive conclusion. But it's contained implicitly at the beginning in the teaching that she's the new Eve. This is the argument of John Henry Newman in his letter to Pusey in the second volume of the Difficulties of Anglicans. And it accords quite well with what Aquinas says here. And there could be more things taught later about, say, the, very, the, the Virgin Mary present at the cross being uh, praying for the whole salvation of the human race, being in that respect in a very nuanced way, a mediator of salvation, not in the sense that any grace derives from her that doesn't derive from Christ, that she adds to Christ, but in fact all grace derives from Christ, but she cooperated by implica- implor- imploring our salvation in that very act of redemption. Okay, that could be, that could be made a dogma. It's not. There is something about it in Vatican II. So it has some dogmatic implicit foundation, but it could be made more explicit. And then you could say, well, all the people who don't, like you right now, don't know if it's a dogma yet, so you're going to hell. Because you didn't explicitly believe everything the Catholic Church taught. Like Bernard of Clairvaux thought the Virgin Mary was conceived in sin, so he's in hell. Except he's a saint. Wait, so the Catholic Church is contradicting itself? So it's all false. So we should all leave. We should get banking jobs. We're in the wrong place. What are we doing here? No, because it's still like an implicit, like he believes in the Virgin Mary's Holiness, and it's, he's trying to think about what ought to be, be believed explicitly about her sinlessness at conception. He certainly believes she was sanated in the womb and she never actually sinned. Everybody agreed on that. Augustine agree, was clear about that. Augustine says maybe she's immaculate from the first con- moment of conception, maybe she's sanated in the womb, but she certainly never sinned. That's the only debate that ever happened in Christianity about Mary. It's, it's not whether she ever actually sinned, it's whether she was sanated in the womb after conception or at conception. That's the big debate, and they finally settled on at conception. But the point is, if you didn't know the, what was explicitly going to be declared, you're okay because you believe, you believe in the authority of the church, and so far as you do, you implicitly believe in whatever the church is later going to declare authoritatively. So you can, the doctrine can develop, and you can still be involved in debates and argue, and you could end up being wrong, but because you're, de- you're devoted to the truth of the, of the Catholic faith as enunciated by the church, over time, you implicitly believe whatever the church will eventually come to utter. Which is why, when you're received into the church on Easter night, as an adult, you say you adhere to all that the church teaches. One of the things you say in the Creed is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. As a mystery of faith, not in so far as you think that the the church is the font of revelation, but that the church is given the grace to receive the revelation over time in a developing way that's in an explicit, rendering it more explicit in a way that's infallible. We only have three articles left. Let's look briefly at eight and nine. Are the articles of faith suitably formulated? I answered, as stated above, to faith those things, are in, themselves belong, those things in themselves belong, the side of which we shall enjoy an eternal life, by which we are brought to eternal life. You see how all these little articles at the beginning line up? The object of theology is the Holy Trinity. Happiness is to see God face to face faith has for its object the first truth, and the creed teaches the things that are to make us, the, the mystery that is to make us happy, to orient our lives intellectually towards our final end. Now, two things are proposed to us to be seen in eternal life. The secret of the Godhead, it's interesting there, he says that God is a secret. He doesn't say a mystery, he doesn't say hidden, he says a secret. It's interesting, is, it, is that in Latin? Anybody see? I don't see secret in there. I don't Alright. Oh, it's um the secret of the godhead? Yeah. Oh, Oh yeah, occultum. The hiddenness, actually. It's more like hiddenness. Occultum. It's something like hiddenness. Anyway, the hiddenness of the godhead. To which to see to which is to possess happiness and the mystery of God's Incarnation. Now, this is very important. Aquinas is really clear on this in other places. The two fundamental mysteries of Christianity above all else are the mystery of the Holy Trinity and the mystery of the Incarnation. It's very interesting. Some people don't agree with that. They say things like, you know, this fundamental mystery is the resurrection or the atonement. Aquinas puts all that stuff under Incarnation that God became human and then suffered for us and is raised and is glorified His humanity. But why did God become human? What's the answer for Aquinas? Why did God become human? Sorry, what? Yeah, but why is it fitting? Okay, and what, well, that's, that's sort of on the right path. And what else? So that we can see God. Yeah, and wh- who's God? What is God? the Holy Trinity. God became human so that we could know who God is as Holy Trinity and that God could communicate his life to us so that we could be participants in the life of God, the Holy Trinity. It's a very trinitarian centric vision of the the mystery. Now, with regards to the majesty of the Godhead, three things are proposed for our belief. First, the unity of the Godhead, to which article one refers. Secondly, the Trinity of the persons, to which three articles refer corresponding to the three persons. And third, the works proper to the Godhead, the first of which refers to the order of nature, creation, in relationship to the article about the creation as proposed to us. The second refers to the order of grace, in relation to which all matters concerning the sanctification of man are included in one article. While the third refers to the order of glory, uh, in relation, and in, let's see, second gra- yeah. So creation, natural creation, grace, and glory And in relation to this, other articles proposed to us concerning the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. Thus, there are seven articles referring to the Godhead. If Aquinas had written the creed, it would look a little cleaner. Maybe a little too clean, but really clean, conceptually. So, there's one God, there are three persons, God has created us, the order of nature, God has redeemed us in the order of grace, and God is elevating us to the order of glory. In like manner with regards to Christ's human nature, there are seven articles, the first of which refers to Christ's incarnation conception, the second is virginal birth, the third to his passion, death and birth, burial, the fourth to his descent into hell, the fifth to his resurrection, the sixth to his ascension, the seventh to his coming for the judgment. So different mysteries of the life of Christ. So there are 14 articles in all. Some, however, distinguish 12 articles, six pertaining to the Godhead, six to the humanity, for they include in one article the three about the three persons, while because uh, we have knowledge in the three persons, while they divide the article referring to the work of glorification into two, the resurrection of the body and the glory of the soul. Likewise, they unite the conception and nativity to one article. So he's saying there's other ways to arrange it, but he's saying there's a kind of fittingness. Now, you have to understand, some, there's, you know, some people read Aquinas as like this rationalist who's trying to fit all of Christianity into this rational system. Aquinas thinks that God is intelligible and that he's also numinous and mysterious. And the creed reflects both these aspects. I mean, it's a mystery and it's an intelligible mystery and there's going to be a certain kind of order to it. So let's just try to see what's the maximal light of intelligibility we can cast. But in this life, it's also always gonna have some obscurity. A good theologian knows when to respect the obscurity of mystery and when to advance, you might say, ambitiously try to cast light on the mystery. How intelligible is the cross? Well, it's highly intelligible. Is it as intelligible as just like an algebra problem? No, because you can't comprehensively understand all of it. Maybe algebra problems are also ultimately also mysterious when you start to dig into them, but I don't know, I'm not expert in that. But my point is like there's a numinousness to the mystery of the cross, and there's an intelligibility. And Aquinas often goes, if, as a theologian, he tends to be much more on the side of trying to find the light. Other people are theologians who want to reign much more like with the apophatic, numinous, dark, mysterious element. It's very interesting to read Newman on the Trinity in his first book on the history of the Arian heresy. He has this beautiful Trinitarian theology. It's much more apophatic. It's much less aggressive. He is very minimal in terms of what... He's very clear on orthodoxy, but it's more minimal in terms of what is to be believed. It's where Aquinas is very much kind of like trying to peer into the trinity as, as deeply as possible while still respecting the sort, of, the sort of obscurity of the mystery in this life okay is it suitable for the articles to be embodied in a symbol this is the political or public dimension of so, social dimension of faith I answer that as the apostle says he that comes to believe to God must believe that he is but a man cannot believe unless the truth be proposed to him that he may believe it how shall they know unless they hear How shall they come to believe unless they first hear, and how will they hear if no one preaches to them? Hence the need for the truth of faith to be collated, collected together so that it might be more easily proposed to all, lest anyone might stray from the truth through ignorance. It is from its being a collection of maxims of faith that the symbol takes its name. And who should do this? Article 10, whether it belongs to the sovereign pontiff to drop the symbol of faith, why would that be controversial in Aquinas' own age? Who's going to say that the, 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 the who's going to say that the, the bishop of Rome should not unilaterally on his own add or subtract anything from the creed? The Why? They don't, they don't yes, but specifically, what in the creed are they objecting to? The filioque, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is an ad- addition to the creed that was added by the Roman Catholic Church in the Roman Empire. Okay. I answer that, as stated above, a new edition of the symbol may become necessary in order to set aside the errors that may arise. Consequently, to publish a new edition of the symbol belongs to that authority which is empowered to decide matters of faith finally so that they may be held by all with unshaken faith. Now, this belongs to the authority of the sovereign pontiff, to whom the more important and more difficult questions that arise in the church are referred, as it says in the decretals. Hence, our Lord said to Peter, whom he made sovereign pontiff. I have prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith may, not f- may fail not, and thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. The reason of this is that there should be one faith of the whole church, according to 1 Corinthians 1.10, that you may all speak the same thing, and that there may be no schisms among you, and this could not be secured unless the- any question of faith that may arise be decided by him who presides over the whole church, so that the whole church may hold firmly to his decision. Consequently, it belongs to the sole authority of the sovereign pontiff. To publish a new edition of the symbol. Now, notice he, you know, he, he claims there that there are special prerogatives to the Petrine ministry revealed in Scripture, so that we see that the subordinate role of the Pope, the Pope is not a is not an oracle of revelation, but the Pope is a steward or servant of the divine revelation who has a special authority to clarify what pertains to the re, the revelation, in always in collegiality and communion with all the bishops of the Catholic Church, but with a sovereign authority in that collegial body. There's a lot more about this in Vatican I Vatican II. But let's just do a thought experiment for a moment. Say, this is a thought experiment that's uh, proposed by a famous, one of the great famous Dominican Thomas commentators, John of St. Thomas, who was a Portuguese uh, commentator from the 16th century. So, sorry, what am I saying? 17th, I think. Um, 17th century, I believe. Anyway, John St. Thomas basically says, um, okay, this is obviously asking us to believe a lot, right? There's a person who can function in this continual way over time, has this office to safeguard the, the doctrine of the faith, um, infallibly. Uh, well, let's, let's just get rid of him for a moment and just look at the world around us where there are different um, denominations with different uh, interpretations of Scripture. And now we have many denominations. So he doesn't put it this way, but I'm, I'm 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 creating my own version of it. Let's create a World Council of Churches of all those denominations, and then let's get them together and try to figure out what must be believed, um, you know, among all human beings who are Christian, so that we really receive the revelation. You we say, well, wait, wait, wait. It should be the private conscience of each one. Oh, m- maybe, but God has revealed Himself, and God is infallible. It's very odd to say that God would be fallible. God is infallible. And God truly has revealed himself, and we've really received revelation. I mean, I can understand saying God is infallible. He hasn't revealed himself. But if he's revealed himself, and we really received revelation, the revelation has to be infallible, because it comes from God. And we've received it. Now, we receive it through our social life as people who live together. So it has to be received through traditions. And there are all these different traditions who claim to read the Bible in certain authoritative ways. So we need to come together in the World Council of Churches and enunciate in some solemn way what pertains infallibly to the revelation of God. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of those Roman Catholics with their one sovereign pope, so let's try to do this more intelligently. Let's be representative. Let's get five people together from you know five representative bodies, and let's put them in a room together and let them pray about it in the Holy Spirit and come up with what we will take to be the infallible truth. Because other than that, we're not going to actually, as a, a, a congregate, congregation of different, uh, 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 kind of a a larger group of of different people, different congregations, different traditions, be able to enunciate what has been infallibly received by everyone. Okay. Uh, Can we do that by our own power without special grace? Can five people just be appointed by us and we can expect that God will give them the grace to locate and identify by right judgment what pertains infallibly to the truth of the matter? when we know there's all these dissensions and discussions and differentiations out there. No, probably not, unless you want to be a Pelagian. So they need a special grace. But well, let's presume they have it. So then they get together, they get this special grace from God, which is not anywhere mentioned in the Bible, by the way. The special grace of the five people in the World Council Church. And then they make annunciations of infallible doctrine. Now what's amazing about that is five people are involved now. And they've come to uh, a... Uh, an agreement that is aided by grace, which had no special mention in scripture, but which we now believe it exists out of necessity so that we can all receive collectively a revelation. Now, if you don't aim for something like that, it's hard to say what ecumenism would really be about, because when you're doing ecumenism, you're actually trying to find what is the truth of the matter we all agree on. So that's a kind of terminus. But here's the thing. We started with the premise that it was hard to believe that one person could have this office down through time. But in that case, we only had one person to believe to be safeguarded by infallibility. And that person has an office that we see evidence of receiving the pledge in the Bible itself. Now we have no pledge in the Bible itself to believe that these people have the grace to give us authoritative declarations of doctrine. And there's no foundation for it in Scripture. And there's five of them and not one of them. So it's harder to believe. So let's get rid of that. But then in that case, we really should stop doing ecumenism. Because that's the search for the truth about what God is infallible to believe that we all should believe in as a body. Because that whole aim, the final, final ends of Acts, is oriented towards finding a final common truth that's infallible we can all confess as being revealed by God. So if you're going to be ecumenical, actually and try to find a common truth, you probably have a reason, John St. Thomas kind of argues, and it's my interpretation, but somebody something like this. You have a good reason to believe in the sovereign pontiff as an essential part of the way we resolve the question of what God truly has revealed infallibly. There's not really a way to get back to a unity in the church if there's not something there from the start which assures and safeguards, the, as it were, mechanisms of the articulation of infallible doctrine in a symbolic way through creedal structures. Otherwise, the whole thing is kind of threatened by deep incoherence. Now, I'm not saying that the Eastern Orthodox view is incoherent to say there's like five patriarchates or whatever, but it's, it's, it's as or more difficult to hold. So, these are things to think about ecclesiologically.